Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Thursday. This is Seattle Now. Earlier this week, dozens of people seeking asylum in the U.S. showed up at the Seattle City Council. Lo que realmente necesitamos un poco ayuda de ustedes. We really need some help from you. De corazón les agradecemos que nos ayuden a solucionar esta problemática. We are asking you from our hearts to help Tenemos muchas necesidades como migrantes. More than 200 migrants, most of them families, were facing a night sleeping on the street after their emergency shelter fell through. In a minute, KUOW reporter Gustavo Segrero will explain how they ended up in this situation and where they might go next. But first, let's get you caught up. State Liquor and Cannabis Board members are following up after prominent LGBTQ plus bars and community members accused the board of raiding their establishments. Enforcement officers informed bar owners they observed multiple lewd conduct law violations, including customers and jock straps and an exposed male nipple. LCB Director David Postman denied that the agency conducted raids, but did call the state's lewd conduct law problematic in his personal point of view. Postman said the agency should focus on education as opposed to enforcement and emphasized that LCB were not targeting the LGBTQ plus community with last weekend's inspections. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun Wednesday took responsibility for the recent fuselage blowout on one of the company's 737 MAX 9 planes. While on an earnings call, Calhoun told investors Boeing is accountable for what happened adding, we caused the problem and we understand that. The Federal Aviation Administration is investigating production lines at the company's Renton facility. 737 MAX 9 planes are back in airline rotations this week after being grounded for most of January. And the Seattle Seahawks have settled in on a replacement for Pete Carroll. 36-year-old Mike McDonald is now the youngest head coach in the NFL. Pete Carroll was the oldest head coach in the league while he was still in charge. McDonald's previous job was a defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. They had the best record in the NFL this season. Welcome to Seattle, Mike. You have got some big shoes to fill. Buenas tardes. Primero que todo, queremos darle las gracias a Dios y gracias a ustedes por escucharnos. Good afternoon. First of all, we want to thank all of you and thank God for hearing us. Mi mensaje va a ser corto y preciso. My message is going to be Quiero que cada short. una de las mamás que están aquí se levanten. Cada uno de los niños que estén aquí se levanten. I want all the moms that are here to stand up, all the kids that are here to stand up. Para que sepan que tenemos una urgencia. So that you una emergencia que tenemos. Hoy en día no tenemos dónde pasar la noche. To understand that this is urgent. This is urgent. We don't have a place to spend the es night. Es lo primordial tonight. y por lo cual estamos aquí. That's the voice of a Venezuelan migrant seeking asylum here in the U.S. We're going to call him Ben to protect his identity. Ben spoke to the Seattle City Council through an interpreter Tuesday. The deadline for him and about 200 other people to leave a hotel where they'd been living in Kent. As he told the city council, the majority of people at the hotel are parents with young children. All are migrants from Venezuela with protected status in the U.S. KUOW reporter Gustavo Segrero has been following the growing number of unsheltered migrants in King County. He says everyone has their own story of why they left their home country. But for a lot of migrants from Venezuela, coming to the U.S. is complicated. They're fleeing because of concerns of safety, 
the United States, the United Kingdom, the UN have all imposed sanctions on the country, um, which complicate the economic conditions in Venezuela. At the same time, the U.S. has provided temporary protected status for immigrants from Venezuela, which incentivizes people from there to come to the United States. When migrants arrive at the U.S. border, they need to supply an address where they're planning to go. Ben and hundreds of other migrants pointed to the Riverside Park United Methodist Church in Tukwila. Gustavo spoke to the church's pastor, Jan Bullerjack, about how the church became a destination. I mean, the camp at the church first started out as a camp for homeless people in the Seattle area. Um, She mentioned that a family from Venezuela was living in the streets of Seattle, and they had come there to find a place to stay. That's where she says things started to happen. They probably told family back home or some colleagues along the way, and that ultimately expanded. In the past few months, more than 500 people seeking asylum have arrived at the church. Most are families with school-aged children. Many are from Venezuela or African countries like Angola. The camp was getting so large, the church couldn't keep up. People show up. um, The church tries to connect them with services. They're just one entity that's managing this, um, so they're under a lot of stress. Other groups are trying to come in and help as well. There's nonprofit groups. There's grassroots organizers who are all trying to provide solutions um, and housing. But all this is just, you know, piecemeal, right? At the end of the day, it's just individuals um, trying to solve this problem. Then the warm December temperatures took a dive. Seattle was staring down a days-long cold snap with temperatures in the teens overnight. And the people still living in tents needed a bed inside. The night the cold snap hit, I spoke to one of the coordinators at the church, and they said, you know, like, tonight, nobody's going to sleep in the cold. Everybody's going to be indoors. But the temporary solutions put together by local organizers wouldn't last long. Ben and about 200 other Venezuelan migrants were put up at the Quality Inn Hotel in Kent. Local volunteers donated funds to help, and a startup gave them a card to pay for their stay. It worked for a while. But earlier this week, the card was declined. The hotel said the migrants needed to leave. Gustavo says a lot of this comes down to a familiar problem in Seattle, a shortage of affordable housing. Basically, what we're kind of seeing is a foundation already in Seattle, in the Seattle area, where housing has already been a big issue. Getting people into shelters has already been a big issue. And there is already no Um, concrete solution for that. And now we have even more asylum seekers who need housing, who need shelter, especially long term when they submit their applications, they need a place to stay and eat and stay safe. That just, you know, compounds the issue even more. Let's talk about their legal status, because they are protected Mm -hmm. here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. What is the status of their legal protections at this point? So when groups have temporary protected status, they're not removable from the United States. They can obtain an employment authorization document, and they also may be granted travel authorization. The thing to focus on here is that they can obtain an employment authorization document. These people want to work, right? They want to start their lives. They want to get going, but they can't do that without navigating the legal process first. The Venezuelans, the immigrant community from Africa, they're all asking for the bare minimum. Right. And that's especially these asylum seekers. They're asking for the bare minimum in terms of like we need housing to be able to file our our paperwork. So when we get our paperwork, we can get a job. So when we get a job, we can apply for housing or even, you know, sign up to get rent in the area, which, as we know, in the Seattle area, rent's already pretty expensive. So 
they have a long way to go. And this is just the first step in getting them a, a place to, to just fill out documents, basically. Gustavo, we heard from Ben at the start of this show that on Tuesday that they literally didn't have a place to sleep that night. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an update? Yeah. So a group of people had stayed at City Hall. The reason why they stuck around is because city officials were telling the community leaders like, hey, like, we're going to see what we can come to a solution with this around like, I don't know, 730 at night. City officials came down and spoke to the community that was left behind at City Hall. They told them that we are working out a contract um, so you guys can stay at the hotel for at least the next week throughout the next week. So until next Tuesday, there was a group of community advocates also there who also pointed out, like, you guys were able to find a solution for this within a matter of hours. Imagine what you can do within a matter of weeks now, or a matter of a week to solve this. Yeah, what does happen after that week in the hotel runs out, Mm -hmm. Gustavo? For sure. Well, I mean, they're back to square one if they don't find, if there's no housing solutions that are immediately found. One of the more outspoken community leaders for the Venezuelan community, after they kind of heard that news, she then went to um, city officials saying, like, hey, like, let's meet tomorrow then let's let's have this conversation now about you know yes housing is an issue but we also need support in terms of getting our papers processed this is a complex set of issues and a lot of people need help gustavo and i'm hearing private groups and individuals are stepping up to help house this group of people or at least keep them fed and out of the elements for the short term this church is one of them is there anyone in our local government who's supposed to help people in this situation there is a task force. There is an intergovernmental statewide task force that factors in the city of Seattle, the state of Washington. The governor's office is also kind of, you know, has their ears on this. Um, there's also county and city council members that are on this task force or at least listening in on the conversations. You know, they're all trying to optimize some sort of solution. There are talks of long-term solutions that have been that are kind of in the works but really nothing substantial has come out yet. Many of the county, city, local government, people that I talk to, they all point to the federal government needing to play a role in finding solutions for this. And to their point, this is a immigration issue. This is a national issue. This is all about the policy of how we write our immigration code. They describe not having the, the infrastructure, the funding to facilitate the needs of these asylum seekers. You know, immigration is an issue that impacts the whole country. We're in a really expensive area of the country, though, one of the priciest. How much does Seattle's high cost of housing play into this situation snowballing to the extent that it has? I think that's a great question to ask our housing reporter. In a way, and this is just me reflecting what you're saying, but thinking forward to the future, like, you know, if you can solve for an issue like this for asylum seekers in a organized and concrete way, um, you can maybe apply the solutions and the lessons we learned from here to just housing instability throughout Seattle entirely, um, especially when it comes to emergency housing situations like this. Yeah, um, That's thinking into the future, though. And who knows if, you know, people will learn those lessons, if local leadership will learn those lessons. But, you know, time will tell. Yeah. And in the meantime, people keep arriving. Mm-hmm. Gustavo, if there are people listening to this conversation who want to help, how can they get involved? I think placing pressure on elected officials to find a solution, even at the local level, is helpful. I mean, that's what created the solution. I think, you know, contacting local officials about the significance of this issue has created some solutions. One way that I've seen that people have tried to help is just dropping off food, dropping off resources, dropping off funds, paying for their hotel bill, right? 
that's also something people can actually that people have actually done directly. Gustavo Segrero, KUOW's race and identity reporter. Really appreciate your reporting. Thanks for sitting down with us. Sure. Anytime. Before we go, we want to hear from you. Specifically, if you ride light rail, we'll be releasing a show next week about the construction delays and other issues over the past few weeks. Give us a call. Shoot us an email. Tell us how the delays impacted your life. You can check out the show notes for details. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. An extra thanks to the generous listeners who financially support this show. Today's episode was produced by Claire McGrain. Our production team also includes Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Jenny Cecil Moore, and Bond Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you tomorrow. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.